DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He is the author of Hidden Mountain's Secret Garden, a theological contemplation of prayer, as well as numerous other books focused on the spiritual life. In this series of Conversations with Dr. Lillis, we focus on Doctor of the Church, St. Teresa of Avila, and her great spiritual masterwork, The Interior Castle. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Anthony. It's great to be with you, Chris. We continue our deep dive into one of the great mystical writings, can we say that, of a a millennium, really. Yes. Yes, I I think you're right. I think this, and in particular, uh, this chapter five um, is uh, very, very rich. It helps us understand contemplative prayer, mystical contemplative prayer in the Catholic tradition and what it's all about. And it's it's unique to any other kind of prayer in any other uh, world tradition. It, you know, so everybody who wants to try to collapse Christianity as if it's just one religion out of you know any other, when you start to get into the teaching that we have here, you see something truly unique and different in the whole history of the world has been opened up by Jesus and our faith in him and what Jesus achieves in our hearts through this kind of prayer is absolutely remarkable. I think it needs to be said, Anthony, especially to St. Teresa's credit, to just note that what she presents to us here flows from her own experience, but also from her taking in the experience of so many of the great writers, the teachers that came before her, whether it was a Catherine of Siena or a Francis Borgia, John of Avila. I mean, she was a prolific reader, wasn't she? She was, although the specific analogy that we're going to be looking at here in the Fifth Mansion, uh, in Chapter 2 of the Fifth Mansion, is an image that I am pretty certain she got from St. John of the Cross. Mm. Not that St. John of the Cross writes about it, but we know that St. John of the Cross, for a period of time, was her director, And we know that St. John of the Cross's mother worked with silk. The analogy today is about a silkworm. And the soul is a silkworm. And what happens to the silkworm as it spins its silk. I cannot help but believe that this really rich image she introduces here is something that came up in a conversation during spiritual direction. And all these many years later, now she's committing uh, committing it to writing because uh, she's seen and experienced what St. John of the Cross was trying to convey to her. This is a very special image, isn't it? So often when you think of Teresa of Avalon or explanations on the spiritual life, inevitably you see a picture of a silkworm or a butterfly somewhere. And what we're about to dive into is very, very significant. I guess that's what I'm trying to, to bring out for folks. Yeah, if somebody was to ask in a nutshell what's 
so distinctive in Christian contemplation is that we believe that through this kind of prayer, we actually enter into the mystery of Christ's death so that we can be taken up into his resurrection. And here in uh, this fifth mansion, a very powerful transformation begins to happen in the soul to the degree that it will surrender itself or die um, uh, in this prayer that God is giving it. God will raise it up in this prayer to a new kind of life to the degree that it can let go of things that are distracting it through this kind of prayer. God is going to instill in it new desires, desires, the desires that live in the heart of Christ himself. The words of St. Paul come to me, I live no longer my own life, but the life of Christ in me, as St. Paul talks about. Well, in this chapter, that reality unfolds his part of the development and maturation of mystical prayer in the Catholic tradition. Hmm. Well, let's talk about this particular chapter at each point. She's comparing the soul to a butterfly, isn't she? Well, she does, but before we get to the butterfly, Mm -hmm. um, she compares it first to a worm. Ah. And when we first start our spiritual lives out, we are kind of little ugly worms, Uh, But God gives us uh, good things to eat. She talks about mulberry leaves. As the silkworm learns to eat the mulberry leaves, um, it begins to be able to start spinning silk. And in this, Trisavella sees a comparison to the spiritual life, that the soul, uh, if it feeds itself on the riches of our faith, and, and what does she mean? She means going to confession regularly, going to Mass frequently, receiving communion frequently. She means spending time in prayer, using your imagination in prayer. She means reading the scriptures wasn't something that people could do in her day, but if there was available Bibles to read, she would encourage her sisters to read the Holy Scriptures. What she does instead, because scriptures at this time are not available in the vernacular, for most Catholics, she talks to them about using their imagination and in particular um, imagining Jesus, his life, the different things that happened to him, especially she liked to meditate on the agony of the garden. You might think about the Ignatian exercises, which she was mentored into by Francis Borgia and other prominent Jesuits, the first Jesuits of the day came through Avila and began to teach her this use of prayer where you use your imagination and you let your affections be moved by what God does in your imagination. And in those movements, you renew your devotion to the Lord, you make resolutions, you fight against sin. Well, all of this kind of prayer that I've just described kind of goes with what we call asceticism. Asceticism includes meditation, using your intellect and your imagination on the truths of the faith and the life of Christ, and also the truths of your life, and uh, submitting those things to the Lord over and over and over again. And she says that when you do this, you're like a little silkworm who's making silk. We don't think it's achieving anything of any great consequence at all. We 
what we're going through when as we're meditating and things is we're we're kind of frustrated that our spiritual life isn't taking off the way we hoped for that we still have inordinate attachments holding us back moments where we're not the best person in the whole world and we snap at somebody or other moments where we're despondent because things have gone so bad other moments where we're all inflated because we think we've achieved so much and as we engage in meditation and so forth, as we examine our consciences, as we look at all the movements of our hearts, we don't see that God has done very much at all. All we see is our own failures over and over again. And that can be very frustrating. But Teresa of Alice asserting in the face of all of that, that what you're actually doing is you're spinning silk. And as you spin the silk, you're making a cocoon. And the purpose of making the cocoon is for us to die. We go into a cocoon of prayer, uh, the meditation that God gives us to do, so that in that cocoon we can die to earthly desires so that the desire of Christ Jesus that burns in us might have space to grow. And when it does, this is when a powerful transformation occurs. Yeah, she points out in paragraph three of this chapter, Anthony, that I think, it, and you had in a way mentioned it, she says, by this house, the house that we're spinning with the silk, that she's speaking of the soul, I mean Christ. That's what she says, I mean Christ. I think I read or heard somewhere, as she says, either that our life is hid in Christ or in God, which means the same thing, or that Christ is our life. Isn't that interesting, Anthony? She's still working that through. Are we hidden Christ or or in God? Or The mystery of it still is affecting her and how to try to explain that. Yeah, well, that's this cocoon that we're building. So the soul, as it is the worm that's making the silk, but the, the cocoon that it builds quite without its being aware that it's doing it, is Christ. All the holy thoughts and aspirations and convictions of the heart and all the movements away from sin and and, um, and all the tears of compunction and all the things that flow out make a cocoon in which the soul can go into. At first we think this is all our achievements, but anybody who's engaged in meditation for any length of time realizes that you've achieved so little, your own industry is more marked by the failures than successes. And it's those failures and our faithfulness in the, in the face of those failures, which becomes the condition that allows Christ to make this cocoon around us. So we think we're doing it by our efforts. We think the silk is the product of our spiritual industry, and we're frustrated that our industry isn't better. But it's actually Jesus using our faithfulness in the face of our failures that allows him to build the cocoon around us. He's the cocoon in which the soul goes. Our life is hid in Christ or in God, and Christ is our life. It makes little difference to my meaning which of these quotations is correct, she says. Well, the idea is that by making prayer the thing that kind of holds our life, uh, we're allowing our life to be hid in Christ. 
Again, this is a huge image for St. John of the Cross. If you read Spiritual Canticle, for example, and the very first, the very beginning of the first stanza, Where have you hidden and left my soul moaning? says St. John of the Cross. And St. John of the Cross says, This is the song of the bride. She has become spiritually awake, spiritually alive. She's looking for Christ and she can't find him. He writes to this soul and he says, Do you not know that if Christ is hidden from you in order to find him, you must go into hiding too. You must go into what's unfamiliar, what's uncomfortable, what's inconvenient in order to find him. And just to kind of underline this, the whole context of that poem is a context of a pursuit of love. It's love that moves us into places that are unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and inconvenient. Love gives us courage to go to places in our lives we wouldn't otherwise go. Teresa of Avila, when she's writing about being hidden in Christ in this cocoon, behind this, she's already talked to us about courage earlier in the book. This isn't taking one iota away from all the call to courage. This will take tremendous courage to go into this cocoon and die. But we can do it with confidence because the cocoon isn't the result of our own spiritual industry. The cocoon is Christ himself. Our industry made space for Christ to enclose us and made space for Christ to become our cocoon. And it's in dying in him, it's in being hidden in him that a new transformation of our life is about to occur. Yeah, I thought it was very important, again, in that same paragraph, number three, where she talks about it commences using the ordinary aids given by God to all and applies the remedies left by him in his church. So what she's really saying in a very real way that this is possible for us to at least begin, isn't it, by the what we know as the ordinary means of grace that are supplied to us. It doesn't have to be something that is so extraordinary that we say, well, we can't possibly even begin the journey. Yes, uh, these are things that are available to us all. What's important for it to make our cocoon is what's going on interiorly as we engage. Mm -hmm. When we go to Mass, when we go to confession, when we do our penance, what's going on in our hearts? And and this is how we hasten our, our cocoon building. In, in paragraph 5, she actually says, Let us renounce self-love and self-will. Care for nothing earthly. Do penance. Pray. Mortify ourselves. Be obedient. And perform all the other good works of which you know. Act up to your light. You have been taught your duties. Die. Die as a silkworm does when it has fulfilled the office of its creation. And you will see God and be immersed in his greatness as the little silkworm is enveloped in its cocoon. The inner dispositions are what allow us, as we do the exterior works, are allow, us to, uh, allow us to die to ourselves. We'll return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis in just a moment. Did you know that you can obtain a free app which contains all your favorite Discerning Hearts programs? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Archbishop George Lucas, 
Father Mauritius Fildi, and so many more, including episodes from Inside the Pages, can be obtained on the Discerning Hearts free app. This also includes all the novenas and devotionals and prayers, including the Holy Rosary and Stations of the Cross, the Chaplet of St. Michael, and the Seven Sorrows of Our Lady, all available on the Discerning Hearts free app. Visit the iTunes and Google Play app stores to obtain your free Discerning Hearts app today. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis. For the listener out there who doesn't have a text in front of them, this particular work, you're missing the opportunity seeing more exclamation marks than you do in many other writings. You can just imagine her, can't you say that? Forward then, my daughters. Courage. You can just see her saying, come on. Folks, you can do this. Yeah, and even to die, it's there's an exclamation point. There's a force of joyful encouragement that she is trying to convey in this section, isn't there? There is, and it's an interesting thing because we're coming up into the lofty contemplation of mystical union with God. Uh, that's what she's describing here. But the uh, the movement towards it is fundamentally one of faith, where you're renouncing interior things. And in particular, I like to draw attention to obedience. Obedience, probably more than almost anything else she's listed there, and I'm talking about interior obedience, is the precondition that allows us to die. When we're obedient, it helps us let go of our self-love and our self-will. Because in order to be interiorly obedient, you have to make your will vulnerable to the will of another. And God loves to work through the human relationships in our lives, our marriages, our relationship with our parents, but also uh, other relationships of authority 
to manifest what his will is for us. And there's a death in letting go of our self-will and what we want to do when we want to do it so that he can, so that we can discover his will and act in accord with his will. Uh, and so this death that she's talking about is a letting go of what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it, and letting go of that, and letting go of my earthly dreams, and my own designs, and what I can achieve. When I just let go of that, now God has space to imprint in me, to manifest in me something new, new desires that are above and beyond the narrow scope of my own sphere of activity. And this is a new kind of union. She speaks about with this death being able to see God. And to see God means to be able to behold his loving goodness and what he wills. And now a real union is possible. Before this death, we were held back from union because of all the other activity that was kind of turned in on itself. As we die, we get free from self and we're vulnerable to God's plan and God's goodness. And now God can begin to do things with us. Boy, but you gotta die. I don't mean to overemphasize that, but it's a martyrdom in some ways, isn't it, to ourselves? You have to be willing to just let it go. And for so many of us, it's difficult because there is that big block of fear. Any kind of death, hopefully in the heart of someone, should be such a strong moment in our lives that it, it does evoke a bit of fear, doesn't it? Right. All of what she's written up till now is really about trying to help us confront that fear and act against that fear. She goes on now to begin to explain in order to help us deal with this fear, what this is what will happen if instead of being so afraid to die, you just let go. This is what happens. Uh, and she describes the, this ugly little silkworm being transformed into um, a little white butterfly. And she says, how great God is, how beautiful is the soul after having been immersed in God's grandeur and united closely to him for but a short time. And she said, I do not think it is ever as long as half an hour. Now, this is really interesting. When we experience really intense temptations and we're being tested by inordinate affections or relationships that aren't quite the right thing or anxiety over our children or anxiety over our finances or anything that kind of pulls us away from the presence of God. If we would go into prayer, I've heard this from other people, and she seems to be testifying to that here. If we go into prayer, there are two things that happen that can happen. The first thing is, if we are quiet with the Lord for a half hour, uh, the, you'll notice that the very worst of the worst of that kind of experience, if you refuse to give in to it, and you just turn your mind to the Lord, the worst of the worst rarely lasts more than a half hour. It, it, uh, you, uh, you can get on the other side of this if you practice the presence of God and turn your heart to him for even a half hour. And as you look at his goodness, as you ponder his good, and I'm just talking about regular meditation right now, 
can help you overcome sin. And in that, there's a death to yourself. Now, Teresa of Avila, though, is talking about a holy other kind of prayer besides meditation here. She's talking about beholding God, a contemplation that is mystical, where the effort of our soul is taken up in a new way by grace. And by taking up in a new way by grace, rather than the soul trying to think about God, it simply surrenders to God's presence. In a certain way, you could say it dies before the presence of God. It lets its its um, earthly energies and its own efforts just kind of be silenced by the sheer majesty and grandeur and awesomeness of God. His immensity is truly overwhelming, but it's a gift to see that, to receive that. If um, And she's saying that a half hour of this kind of prayer where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the immensity of the Lord, just a half hour of it, she's saying um, that this has enough power in it to transform our soul from an ugly worm into a beautiful white butterfly. Why you think about pure and lively and filled with life. We, before this experience, we were tied down by earthly things. After this experience of God, even for just a half hour, we find a new freedom. And the things of this world don't tie us down as much. We have a freedom to love what God loves, to will what God wills to be of service to our brothers and sisters without selfish motivation, without preoccupation, without concerns about self-preservation. We're able to simply love with absolute sovereignty and freedom in the will of God. The soul desires to praise our God and longs to sacrifice itself and die a thousand deaths for him. It feels an unconquerable desire for great crosses and would like to perform the most severe penances. It sighs for solitude, and would have all men know God, while it is bitterly grieved at seeing them offend him. And that fundamental new movement in the next mansion, this is what's going to grow and become even more intense. But God, in this prayer, communicates that to the soul. The soul, to receive it, though, really needs to die to itself. Teresa knows this is a rough thing. God knows this is a rough thing. And God would not ask us to do such a difficult thing if what he wanted to achieve wasn't so absolutely beautiful. It's important, isn't it, Anthony, for the soul who is experiencing something like this to remember this is a movement. It's not a, it, ideally, it's, it's not static. That even in, in the movement of our Lord and to the cross and his passion. It was a movement that that we should be aware and understand that. Yeah, it is. It's extremely dynamic and it's so different for each particular soul. So, you know, if you're trying to imagine what this will be like for you, I, the comparison helps you with kind of an image for it. But what will be experienced, what God will disclose to the soul is going to be so different. There are moments when you go to pray, moments of meditation where it's 
primarily you wrestling with sin and you're not very cognizant of God's glory and grandeur or anything beautiful at all. And that's important. Uh, That's building the cocoon. She's talked about that. If you can't, this other prayer presupposes that you've allowed God to put you into the cocoon. But once you're in this cocoon, this new movement of God communicating himself, self-communicating to your soul, disclosing to you his beauty, this is something so wholly other and so beyond our power to imagine. In fact, I think in the beginning, the imagination doesn't really see or hear very much at all. As this begins to unfold, it, it's like in the darkness of a cocoon. You don't quite realize what's going on. But the beauty of God, the dawn from on high as it breaks upon us, it makes everything new. And um, and the new, uh, you kind of realize that God has given you this taste, even for a very brief time, uh, because of the freedom to love that comes afterwards. You're like this butterfly that the things of the this earth and the old anxieties and the old concerns can't keep down anymore. Uh, you have a freedom. Anthony, can you ad- address something? Maybe you have heard this from others, and I'm speaking primarily about lay people, because their experience, if they've entered into something like this, or they feel they have, or they've experienced this, that there may be this feeling, I want to stay here, or that something's happening to me, and I no longer feel I am connected at all with my family or my, you know, the position I have that I'm responsible for in my work, or I just want to be free of all of that so that I can enter more deeply into this. I mean, we can understand that with a religious, because in their community, this is, this is taking them deeply into this type of prayer. For the lay person who feels they may be experiencing this and they have this struggle, how do you counsel them? Well, the problem is there's self-deception is so huge because these goods, when she talks about being free of earthly desires and despising our earthly way of life or worldly way of life, when she talks about those things, what she's talking about is a bad attachment to these things. Insofar as we put our identity into the fact that I have a good marriage or a bad marriage, that I'm a good parent or I'm a bad parent, that I'm a good daughter or a good son, insofar as that's where we put our identity, we're not really very open to the freedom that God would have us have in our relationships. We live in a world that can only see with eyes subject to death. All of those relationships that I just mentioned will all pass away. Yes, in the love of Christ, they'll be caught up again and they'll be raised up. But they're not forever, not the way we're experiencing them right now. And our tendency, because we're afraid of death, because of self-preservation, is to try to cling to those in ways that aren't very healthy in trying to draw my identity into what what kind of marriage I have or what kind of parent I am or uh, how successful I am in my business or not successful in my business. I In putting my identity in that, I don't let God give me my identity as a son, as a daughter of God. When we see ourselves as his son and daughter, this is what Jesus came to reveal to us. This is why 
he was crucified on the cross so that through his wounds we might receive the grace to realize the truth of who we are and to become who we are in the eyes of the Father. Uh, children filled with his life, his love, just find our identity in him. What happens to a soul that is animated with the love of, fa- of the Father that comes through Christ Jesus? They don't love their spouse or their children or their jobs any less. They love them more mm-hmm. because they are attached to them rightly. What we thought was so important wasn't really this relationship, this person and their, their eternal good or this job and how to glorify God in it or um, this, um, uh, you know, other, other thing in our financial well-being it has a means of glorify God. No, what we were attached to was, was the thing itself because we wanted to preserve ourselves. And so our love was like that of an ugly little worm. It was all about me and what I eat all the time. And the fact that I made any sulk at all was kind of accidental and not really from me, but from God's gift in me. Once we die, though, to our disordered affections and our self-occupations and our our need to preserve ourselves above everything else, to have it our way, to make it according to our plans, to be in control, once we renounce all of that and, um, and die to ourselves, God's life in us doesn't make us less implicated in the plight of this world or the plight of those he's entrusted to us. He gives us the power, the strength, the freedom, the fortitude to be more implicated. And furthermore, rather than seeking from creatures thing, something that creatures can never give us, our, uh, we have the freedom to love them for exactly who and what they are, which is much more than we do right now. Mm. And we find what we need, though, what we really need for happiness from God. Once we receive it from God, we can love everything rightly in our lives. We can be rightly attached, rightly engaged, rightly implicated in the plight of those God sends to us in a way that will build them up and help them thrive. Our problem right now isn't that we, we love, you know, our, our, uh, our families and our friends. And, and so, you know, we're afraid that if I have too much, uh, faith, I'll be separated from them and I don't want to turn them off. You know, the problem isn't that we love them too much. The problem is we don't love them enough at all. We love ourselves and we're using them to satisfy our self love. And, and well, that's not true. I'm, uh, I'm very altruistic, uh, with my friend. I spend all this time doing things for my family and, and, um, and I would say, well, there's probably a little bit of self delusion in that. You're getting a satisfaction, the satisfaction that comes out of being needed from everybody. That's a beautiful thing. And it's a wonderful thing. There's nothing intrinsically evil about it. God bless people who find joy in people needing them in life. God bless them. But that's not what we're created for. We're created for something much more. Our joy is to be in the Lord. And once our joy is found in the Lord, once once the joy of possessing him breaks over our whole being, now we have the ability to serve our brothers and sisters not out of our need, neediness to be needed, 
but out of sheer joy and freedom that comes as a son and daughter of God, someone who knows that the Father delights in them, doesn't need to be needed. Someone who delights in the Father's love has the freedom to do whatever the Father desires in that moment. And the Father who is all love, all goodness, all wisdom, all truth, all being, fullness of life, to will what he wills is to bring life into the world in a way that it's never seen before. This is what Teresa of Avila is talking about with this little transformation into a butterfly. You just summed it up so beautifully what she said in that that 13th paragraph in that chapter where she says, what then must his majesty have felt at thus publicly manifesting his perfect obedience to his father and his love for his brethren? What joy to suffer in doing God's will. And there's that exclamation point. What joy to suffer in doing God's will. And she's, just as you said, she's showing us all you got to do is look at Christ. And you said very early in this conversation on this chapter, it's about ultimately the will is to love and to die to what we want in that self-love and have that selfless love. Am I on the right track, Anthony? Uh, you certainly are. It's a selfless love. It's a suffering love. It's a, a love that cannot rest until the beloved thrives. Jesus is suffering love. He suffers for the glory of the Father, and he suffers for our salvation. He suffers that we might know the Father's love in our hearts. And that same love is what can grip our whole existence. And when it does, it transforms everything. When Jesus' suffering love is in us, we become fiery icons in this world which is so dark and cold. And as fiery icons, we bring it a little bit of light and a little bit of warmth. And that light and warmth gives hope to people who otherwise would never have it. And so we become implicated in the Father's plan for the salvation of the world when we allow Jesus' suffering love to live in us by our own dying to ourselves. Mm, Beautiful. Any final thoughts on this chapter, Anthony? It's one of the richest in all of spiritual literature, and it should be prayed over again and again. I think that if Christians would have the courage to let God show his suffering love to the soul, let God see it, if they'd have the courage to die to themselves and avail themselves of this vision, I think so much hurt and ill in the world today could be healed because I know that God wants to address it, but he's counting on us to die to ourselves so that through us he can do that. So I I think this is just powerful, beautiful stuff and one of the best arguments for mystical contemplation in the Christian life. Would you put an exclamation point on that one? I certainly would. All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you, Chris. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. There, too, you will find an audio version of The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, the masterwork in which this series has been based. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will 
First, pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lewis.